So we're just north of the city in Hackney. It's all full of little buildings, kind of stuffed one on top of another. We're in Orseman Road and we're here with Reba J Meets to hear the sound of timber construction. It's quiet, isn't it? Actually, what you can hear is children outside. War Thistleton designed these offices and we're going to talk to Andrew War and Anthony Thistleton about bringing up kids and about growing up in Hoxton as a practice, as well as about timber buildings. We're here with Anna Warenka from War Thistleton and you've worked on Orsman Road. Did it make a difference as a project architect coming to site pretty regularly to a much quieter site? Yeah, much quieter, much tidier. The builders in the beginning were like, oh, we love these so much, like a nice environment to work with. And for us, you can feel the timber, smell it. It's just a different experience, really. Welcome to Ruby J Meets. I'm Eleanor Young. In this new series of podcasts, we're going to be hearing stories and delving deeper into the lives and practices of leading architects. With me today are Andrew War and Anthony Thistleton, the two founding partners of War Thistleton. So you've been in practice together for over 20 years. You've celebrated your 21st birthday. And in privately. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, how did you get together and how soon after you met did you know that you could work together? Andrew and I met in college after degree. We did degree separately, met doing diploma at Kingston. And quite early on, we, we had an affinity we rejected, I think, some of the precepts of architectural education. Certainly one of the kind of things was is when you looked at some of the more obscure schemes that other people presented and there was the kind of, well, where's the bin store? How does that, <laughs> how does that stand up? I love that, that you're bonding over a bin store. One of your early projects was the Blue Note. I remember going in there, kind of smoky atmosphere, kind of cut through with sort of sharp, amazing music. How did you get that project? Just for um, full disclosure, that, that I did that project um, before Anthony and I were in practice together. So I did that with Sarah Featherstone. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, Featherstone War, that was then. Still a very close friend of mine. I live next door on Hoxton Square. And back in, so this was about 1993... And I lived a couple of doors down from where the Blue Note was and and I was out buying some milk and uh, I saw two guys going in. So I ran in after them and said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in the space? What are you going to do? And they were like, oh, you know, we're like, you know, musos and we're going to make it into a nightclub. I was like, oh, great. Have you got an architect? And they're like, no, we don't need one. I was like, yeah, yeah, you do. Everybody needs an architect. <laughs> and we started drawing and sketching and... Then I kind of like slowly inveigled my way into that without really knowing what I was doing. And then Sarah and I did that and finished about a week before my daughter was born. That's how I remember it so clearly when it was. (laughs) Those kind of connections with music and clubbing, were you always went in with the cool crowd? I think that there was a kind of a sort of a shared aspiration. I think that I was at college. Anthony and I had a studio with Sarah Featherstone and other students in Hoxton Square and when we were on diploma and because you know we all lived in these tiny flats and there was was a long way to Kingston and you could get a studio in Hoxton Square for you know and uh you know two shillings halfpenny a week whatever and so we had these studios and then there were artists in the same building and when they finished art school they started making art and I think that there was that idea or that encouragement actually you finished architecture school why didn't you you know start making buildings Did any of the artistic experimentation rub off on you two? Yeah, I think so. I think it's actually core to the whole practice, still. I mean, you know, to understand an architecture is, you know, and understand your own expression is to, it's no different from being an artist in many ways. I think that actually the idea that your work would be very much 
part of what you thought and who you were has been a very essential part of our practice. You know, that kind of direct to try and be as coherent from what we believe in to practice, you know, to practice what we believe in. So you were also really hands on because you were bringing up your daughter at that time as the practice grew. I was, yeah. She was raised under my desk. <laughs> like a sort of like poorly nurtured pot plant. <laughs> <laughs> so she came into the office a lot, did she? That was childcare. That was childcare, yeah, basically. Right. <laughs> is, that, is that before she went to school even? No, so um, from when she was uh, seven. Right. Yeah. So she um, came from school back into the office every day um, for 10 years, did her homework in the office every day for 10 years. So you're in a growing practice You at this time I'm talking about and you're moving into bigger projects. Was it easy growing up in, you know, scaling up? Yeah, we spent a long time around the 12 person mark. And I, I think once we started mm. to grow beyond that, the growth was reasonably constant until we sort of reached 30. I think there are natural natural stages as you as you grow but i think the one the one thing that i think we really did notice or i certainly noticed was it was the transition to actually getting decent sized i said decent the medium sized buildings i think we were working away there was trying to getting a client to to trust a practice who's never done a building of a certain scale before is is a challenge i think when we did Murray grove mm. we it was we, a big step up for it us. was a big step up and i think it was the, it was the only ceiling i think it was the only kind of glass ceiling but it was the only it was the only I think it was the only step up that I felt any inertia or any, any difficulty with. I want to come back to Murray Grove in a okay. second. There must have been some sort of failures on the way, some projects that were really hard or that had big issues or things that you didn't resolve as well as you wanted to. We won a competition in Liverpool quite early on for a big building, which we then didn't get to build out. And that was, that was pretty difficult at the time. I, mean, you know, I recall that we came in as complete outliers. We were only about seven people yeah. and we were landed with this... What's the, what was the building budget? Probably about fifty million, Massive. and we and we, our direct client, kind of took took a shine to well took a shine to Andrew particularly, but to the practice. And we, in, within six months, they hadn't been able to get planning for the site for three years. And within six months, we got them planning, and we went ahead and we we actually designed a building and we moved it forward. And I think that for me that I, I thought that was a I mean, it was satisfying. It was incredibly at the satisfying. Time. Disappointing <clears throat> that that we didn't get to finish it. There are so many buildings that you nearly get or competitions that you think you might win and then you don't. You know, mm. planning jobs where the client decides to sell them and then somebody else brings their own architect or something. And that, that doesn't stop, really. I mean, that keeps going. You just get a little bit more inured to it. You know, you get a bit... You, I don't think you ever want to become, you know, completely unsusceptible to that kind of heartache because then you'd lose your passion. It's a heartbreaking process, often, still. And the other thing that nobody told you, nobody told us, is that, you know, you have to be quite old before anybody trusts you with a building. And that was, like, infuriating. I think I might have taken 10 years off if I'd known that. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you both? 50-something. 50 52, I am. And when did people trust you? About two years ago. <laughs> I, I, it was a discussion I was having with someone, I can't remember, the, 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 a year ago, and say so it's, it's amazing that people now finally trust us. <clears> and they say, well, look at you, look how grey you are. <laughs> how grey? How grey? Hello. <laughs> I thought you said yeah. great, but you didn't say grey. No. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of like, it, you're right, it's track record, it's having a portfolio, showing that you've done these things already, but it is also kind of, you know, turning up to a meeting with a few kind of 
lines. <laughs> of what, Coke? <laughs> Rose feet. So Murray Grove, that was a big jump for you. Timber, lovely and warm. Lots of people use it for little buildings. Not many people do nine I mean, stories with it. Well, I mean, we were employed to produce a concrete building, nine-story concrete tower, and that's the fee that was agreed. In fact, the fee was agreed was a punishing fee because Telford quite rightly pointed out we'd never done a building with a lift before, so they weren't going to pay. You know, they were effectively we were asked to compete or be quite competitive on our fee if we wanted the job, and we wanted desperately wanted the job. Yes, Andrew had this notion, well, let's build it in cross-laminated timber, which we knew about, and Andrew particularly was, he'd, he'd come back from a previous site where he watched this three-storey extension to an old Victorian schoolhouse go up in an afternoon. And that, and I just, you know, that was infectious, and even though I was, I was sort of, how are we gonna do this for the money? And the client said, I don't, you know, you've never done a building of this scale before, what are you thinking? And yet Andrew kept on pushing because I think this, but what was infecting us all was this, this possibility of doing things differently and getting a better way of putting things together, putting buildings together. We had this kind of fascination with the prefabrication of it, with the kind of, um, you know, the on-site assembly of pre-made pieces, with the, um, with the lightweight strength of the timber. And we had this kind of fascination with that. And there'd been conversation within the office about, you know, how we could, you know, how we could look at sort of urban housing crisis issues, you know, this, you know, having to build these 20,000 homes a month or whatever it is that we're supposed to be building. And um, even 10 years ago, we weren't building enough housing. And the idea that we would do this without exacerbating climate change, without kind of having, you know, more trucks rattling through the streets, the idea that we could do this in a different way had been a conversation that was, was happening in the office. And this was a project that happened at the same time as that conversation. And so naturally for us, I think, to begin to think about how we could make that building in a way in which we were happy about making a building as well as designing a building. So do you follow? So not just thinking about what will it look like and how big will the flats be, but what will it be made out of and how will it be made you know what will the process what will the material be how will that affect the architecture all those sorts of things because we had 10 years of pent-up architecture <laughs> we finally get a building of any scale all these ideas kind of plowed into it and uh, so we spent twice as much time as the money allowed us to do so i th i think i've heard you talking about uh, th things on site not just about lorries coming to site but about the sound of, of a timber building being put together yeah, it what so does it sound quiet. like nothing just like, zzz, zzz, like little cordless screwdrivers going off and and people whistling you know and kind of laughing and being happy <laughs> such a different building site you know there's no no gloves no masks no goggles so you kind of you know it's like building in a sauna really. yeah you know it's perfect I mean, I have to say, you know, just to, just to kind of build on what Anthony was saying, that like one of those radio shows you hear about where people have done something really difficult, I can't remember what it's called. And it was sort of a perfect storm in the sense that the, the design director at Telford Homes was really, really proactive and really knew what he was doing and was incredibly encouraging of us as well. And I think that, and our client, our original client, 
at Metropolitan Housing also was incredibly encouraging. And so were Hackney Council. So we had this kind of perfect storm of people who were really behind the idea as well. And I think that without Telford Homes, technical kind of creativity it would never have happened as well. Because Telford Homes are a developer and a contractor, that whole argument about that whole argument about about improving the construction outcomes about you know, I mean in the end all we needed we could demonstrate quite clearly to the MD of, of Telford that we were going to save him money and deliver the project quicker and that was we didn't need to talk about in fact we didn't really talk about saving the planet or saving CO2 as a developer they wanted to know that we could do it quickly and cheaply and you also used it as a research project uh, we use every what? project as a research project <laughs> what did you find out on this one what did we find? Well, we found out where to put the lifts. <laughs> no, I think what we found out was really um, an understanding that if you change the building material, then you change the process of construction. That was the first, for me, the first thing that we found out, that you kind of, if you build in a different building material, the implications of that through the whole process of construction really change the nature of that kind of, of that sort of building and building process. So, so you've you've thought about how it's made, but do you ever go back there and talk to residents? Yes, we do. Not actually, we don't knock on their doors and say to them, you know, how are you? <laughs> but we do, um, up until last year, actually, we did an open house talk outside Murray Grove every year for about eight years. And every time somebody from the building would come down and answer questions or kind of, you know, say helpful things like, you know, it's all made of wood and stuff like that, you know, which is great. In fact, the bitch I tell you, you've got time for an anecdote, really. St so I met the head of Canadian forests outside the building once, this old guy whose secretary had a secretary, that's how important he was. And I was five minutes late to meet him. When I got there, he told me that an elderly lady had come up to him and poked him in the back with a walking stick. And when he turned round, she said to him, she pointed up at the building and she said to him, it's all made of wood. <laughs> so people know, you know, our, our, one of our big things has been about the fact that Often developers, estate agents have said, you know, that's great, make it in timber, da, 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 but don't tell anybody it's made of timber because, you know, the residents aren't, you know, purchasers aren't interested in that kind of thing. And yet with Murray Grove, everybody knew it was made of timber. Everybody still knows it's made of timber. And those flats sold in an hour and 15 minutes. And How many flats? 29. So people really, you know, people continue to be excited. A couple of years ago when we did Open House last, we had a 700 people come to come to my house <laughs> but at that point yeah. mm -hmm. <clears throat> at that point we would as you finished we were just entering recession yeah we so fell off a cliff how was it finding projects it was hard <laughs> how was it finding income it was really difficult i mean it was, it was kind of like i mean i was, yeah i went on the lecture trail really to pay for myself yeah you know, so I, were you sitting <clears throat> in the office preparing your lecture notes and going anthony this is what we're about. Pretty much. To a certain extent. Yeah, it was kind of and, like that. <laughs> and then actually Andrew got me on a couple of gigs. Yeah. And, I, and again, you know, I found the same thing is, is you kind of, you find yourself refining the message and understanding your motivation through talking about it and through the feedback you get. And that's why one of the reasons we now use the opportunity, people still want to hear about what we're doing. And we've now got, I think, six or seven other people in the office who go and give talks so you're getting 150 quid or 80 quid here and there for going yeah. in going in lecturing oh sorry <laughs> 20 quid <laughs> is that is there any value to you in having done all those lectures yeah immense amount of value actually immense amount of value and i think that you know it's one of those situations that actually in hindsight 
was in, was um, incredibly useful because what I did was I talked a lot about what we'd done. And when you talk about what you've done, it helps you realise why you did it. So at that point, you kind of become the, the poster boys, the poster people for timber structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you get a chance to talk about other things, too. Are there any other are, are there any lessons for other practices who might want to specialise? I'm not even sure I like that very much. OK. Um, I only what, would that, you like to, what would well, you like to... Because um, I have seen you described as timber experts, I know, and I did so think I. you probably <laughs> wouldn't like that. I don't like that. I mean, that was one of the reasons why Bushy was so great. You're going to say we're going to come on to that. But um, that's one of the reasons why Bushy was so great, just because when because we have been as a practice obsessed or, or, or preoccupied, at least with this, you know, with low carbon construction through timber through engineered timber, understanding that material, understanding how that changes the construction process, changes the architecture. You know, we become really directed on this because we think it's really important. But we didn't set out to become experts like some people, which is really, you know, which is great. You know, they set out to become experts on primary schools or on, you know, on a particular kind of field or in architecture. And that's great. But actually, I just think that what we're doing is the right way to do things. And I don't think that's being an expert in one area. I just think we're just we're being good at our job because you should build in a low carbon way. And we're building in a low carbon way. And because not many other people are, then that's easy to identify us as experts. But I don't think we're experts. I just think we're doing it right. Another reason is that not only is it a carbon negative material, but also when we use it, we exclude the real carbon villains, the the materials like high embodied energy. So it's a substitution of concrete Concrete and steel. steel. Simple as that. I think what's coming through now is is regeneration it's not just zero it's minus zero and it was put to me in quite simplistic terms if you're if you're driving through the states towards canada and you need to get to mexico yes slowing down is is a good first step but eventually you have to stop and then you have to turn around and go the other way and so regeneration (laughs) for me or not for me but regeneration is it's the going the other way it's that it's turning around and then heading the other way let's just deal with the issue with timber is that people have fires they know that timber burns after Grenville, that's a very big issue. Yeah, I mean, I think, firstly, you know, timber is a combustible material. And we are, we, you know, we are in full acknowledgement of that. And we are careful and we are studious about the way in which we design our buildings um, to protect them against fire and to, um, to reduce the risk of, of starting fires and of, of fires having started in those buildings. I mean, Grenfell, you know, the awful tragedy of Grenfell was in a concrete building not in a timber building, a concrete building with PVC windows. So they banned timber and external walls. I mean, it's just, it's about perception. It's about the force of the concrete lobbying organisations, the fact that they wrote to every MP, you know, the fact that they uh, lobby the government against timber, all of these things, you know, so it really is about perception rather than fact. What we know about timber is that timber is completely predictable under fire. You know exactly how a pine tree will burn you know that it burns at 0.7 millimetres a minute. You know exactly how it will char and everything else. You don't really know when concrete's going to explode. You don't really know when steel is going to buckle. So actually, for uh, you know, for a f- 
going into a timber building, it's completely predictable how that building will behave in comparison to other structures of buildings. But moreover, it's about the fire load of, the, of what's inside the building more than it is about the structure of that building. So for us, it's a battle now on perception more than anything else. Yeah, very it's, difficult thing. But it is, it is the, I mean, timber won't always necessarily be done so carefully. You're talking about it as a careful thing from your point of view. It is possible to design anything badly. Many years ago, a client came in, we were talking about a building project and they were joking with each other about they also ran a cab firm and they were joking about when the cabs had to go into the garage to be to be checked they each had to have a fire extinguisher and rather than fit out their cabs with a fire extinguisher what they did is they had two and the cab that left having got the tick would then have his fire extinguisher taken out and be taken back to the cab that was in the queue so they managed to get their fleet of 50 cabs through with only two fire extinguishers and then all these cabs are out on the road and if a fire occurred they wouldn't have any firefighting how was these, it these people thought it was hilarious yeah. and they were joking about it that was the last meeting we had with them <laughs> because you know, but, but, but but that's a culture that i think we much... might have got on our high horse over that one <laughs> yeah, we, we arranged no, no, you're right episode, i mean it's I mean, as bad we... as kind of moving the solar panels around isn't yeah. it but but that's a, but that's not an unrecognisable culture to anyone in in frankly in, in any industries yeah. whether you're running a cinema or a cab company or you're working in construction. <laughs> Bushy cemetery. Yeah. Uh, Sterling Price shortlisted. Very beautiful. Thank you. Uh, you started essentially with the field. Yeah, we did. Tell us about when you first kind of, visited. Um, so it was one of those amazing phone calls that you get. You know the sort of. Uh, a friendly but hesitant voice on the other end of the line saying I'm not sure this would be something that would interest you but <laughs> you know and then from there to be a, a kind of standing in the middle of a patch of well a field full of cabbages you know um, looking out on sort of 17 acres of bucolic empty, cabbages bucolic cabbages <laughs> always having worked in the, the city in London where your site is a red line on an OS map and you extrude the largest amount of sort of site area that you can out of that site plan to actually be faced with a, a massive open field where to start burying people, where to start putting a prayer hall, you know, where to start putting a little car park, all those things. I mean, it was incredibly challenging. So it's for a Jewish Orthodox community. Yeah. Uh, did you know about the rites? Did you no. know how it all worked? No, I didn't know anything at all. How does it work? It works really beautifully, actually. It works in a way which has been honed, you know, over what nearly two thousand years, I suppose, of kind of just of understanding a process. I mean, I think the thing about the Jewish community is they have had that amazing sense of of integrity as a community, of doing things together, of kind of celebrating family, of celebrating relationships, of celebrating each other. You know, has allowed them to really has allowed them to kind of retain themselves as a as a community whilst living in countries that have been dominated by other communities, other cultures. And so you can see that over hundreds and hundreds of years that actually they've just got really brilliant at this sort of thing, you know, of, of festivals and, and of things that bind them together. And that the funeral process, for me, is very much like that in the sense that it's quite a physical process you know it's quite it's very emotional it's very media so you bury somebody within well as soon as possible really but you know within 24 36 hours of them dying you bury them so there's that there's that immediate drama of having to have 
get to the cemetery from wherever you might be and then that you bury somebody in the earth that you that you are passed a spade so that you can help to to bury the coffin you know i mean i'm in awe of that process i'm I come from a kind of loosely Irish Catholic culture, you know, where we generally tend to bury people in county crematoriums with a sort of shaky velvet curtain. It's really rather awful in comparison. So you conceived the pavilions at Bushy Cemetery as coming from the earth. Yeah, very much so. And the other thing as well is because when that cemetery is full, then the prayer halls will be demolished and a new cemetery will be built with new prayer halls on. Because one of the tenets of the Jewish faith is that you are buried and that your burial site will be looked after by the community in perpetuity. So once, you're, once that field is full of, uh, full of, uh, of burial sites, then you'll need to move to another field. But it sounds very poetic. How did you actually go about it? It's all about sort of messy digging, isn't it? That's construction <laughs> for you. That's construction. I mean, it is a mess. But uh, no, I mean... I mean, it was just fantastic. I mean, you know, we built, we got planning consent. We built a sample wall. The sample wall fell down. You know, I was standing outside with the chief rabbi and, and you know, the chief executive of the United Synagogues and in front of a lump of mud and, you know, them both looking at me going, it'll be all right. And I was going, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and then, you know, Rosie, the engineer, she found a, she found a, a rammed earth specialist in Australia and we had Skype meetings with this guy and then we flew them over from Australia and two of them went to the local building centre, employed all these local guys and got some bobcats, some little diggers and mixed all this rammed earth. And then Anthony in the office, I don't know where I was, Anthony in the office went down there and rammed lots of earth and for a couple of days. This is not this Anthony. Yeah, that Anthony. This Anthony. Anthony. Oh, go on, you actually rammed the earth yourself. (laughs) There was quite a lot of people who wanted to ram as well and there was only a limited amount of all we could ram at the same time. But... People who do it, they're, they're working, I mean, they worked when the sun was out. So if, if it was a late evening, they'd be working possibly 12 hours. I mean, I think I got about 15 minutes done before I really wanted to get a break. <laughs> Fortunately, there were enough people who were kind of going, come on, give me a turn. So I, <laughs> I drank a lot of Fosters. <laughs> so it, in a way, it's a bit like an experiment, another experiment like, yeah. like Murray Grove. Yeah. I mean, the brilliant thing is that there's no typology. So it's not like you don't need a spire or a dome or a crescent or a cross. You know, it's really, it is a building which is, which is a shelter. It's just, it's a simple building to shelter people in while they think about their loved one, while they think about themselves and their own mortality, while they think about life in general, community in general. So it's just a very simple building, very understated building, but one which should represent both the immediate context the immediate purpose and also have a kind of a sort of a wider religious kind of understanding. You know, it was 10 years and lots of talking in sitting rooms across North London to people because we had 10,000 clients. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I love again about the Jewish faith is that, you know, when I grew up, the priest was called a father and he was ordained by God and there was nothing to do about that. Well, we know what happened with that. And I think that, um, (laughs) whereas in the Jewish community, you employ a rabbi, and a rabbi is a teacher. And if you don't like what they're saying, you you fire them. So actually, 
there's no rabbi as your client. Your client is the community at large. So that was kind of a fascinating process as well. But I have to say, I think one of the things that was really telling about the process is the level of, I mean, the respect, trust that our client had in us, mm. which I think is sadly, unfortunately, is, is one of the great crises of our profession is how little authority, another one that we have. And yet they gave us that authority. The other exciting area that we are pushing into, which we've been doing for the last year and a half, two years, is is using cross-laminated timber for volumetric modular housing. And I think that mm-hmm. it's it's not it's potentially less glamorous, but you know this construction of changing the way we build is. I mean, we've bringing cross-laminated timber in and, and helping bring it into the mainstream has brought this off-site technology, help reduce waste, help reduce pollution, help reduce carbon. But in the end, I mean, the build, the construction industry itself is incredibly wasteful. 40% of stuff that's brought to site on a typical building is then taken away as waste. It's massive user of water. I mean, all, you know, there's so many different parameters against it, which it fails abysmally. And construction productivity over the last 50 years has decreased by about 20%. Whereas in manufacturing as a whole, it's gone up by about 250%. And that's because we're still doing things the same we did we did 200 years ago. A load of stuff from Travis Perkins turns up on sites, tipped out. and a oh, bunch another of, supplier. There are other suppliers. <laughs> other suppliers are available. And then, and then put together... You know, by hand, mostly. And that's, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the opportunities for factory, for building things in factories and the, and the difference to, not only differences to productivity, which you desperately need to deal with, not only for waste and, 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 and materials use and embodied carbon, but also because we've had this housing crisis, which we, you know, has been going on for 25 years. We've failed to meet the demand, the, incre- the demand for housing. And this is the job of architects, you know, and yet we're not applying ourselves to it at all. So what's the next experiment i mean you have lots of projects but they can't all be groundbreaking can they no we have a cunning plan (laughs) tell us the cunning plan oh come on not yet we're working on it we have got a good idea the big idea is just continuing to work and to experiment research into different types of building materials you know i i mean we've been talking a lot about this recently but it is the idea that we need to change, fundamentally change our relationship with the planet and that it can no longer be something that we just hunt from, you know, we're just kind of like, we just pillage, scraping stuff off the surface of the planet, taking what we want. It has to be a process of regeneration. It has to be a process of putting back into the planet, but also understanding how we can work with what we've got, you know, how we can replenish, how we can reuse how can we can refurbish, how we can regenerate. Mm. I mean, I think the idea in architecture school is that, that the job of an architect is always a, you know, is a blank canvas, and sometimes that's a blank canvas with context, sometimes it's a blank canvas where you have to ignore the context or, you know, whatever it is. But it's certainly, the idea is that the first thing you do is knock down whatever's there. You'll clear the site. But I think we need to start thinking much more carefully about the buildings that we have and what we do with them, how we use them, how we use the stone that we have, how we use the concrete that we've already made, the steel that we've already formed, how do we reuse those things? So it's a kind of completely changing our cultural notions around you know, the materials that we have and how we use them again and again. Anthony, Andrew, thank you very much. <laughs> thank, thank you. you.